Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Screen Strong Families podcast, bringing you the best solutions for parents who are serious about eliminating screen conflicts in their home. This is Melanie Hempe, and if you are new, we are so glad you found us. And to everyone else, welcome back. Today, I am really about to come out of my skin. I'm so excited. You are in for such a treat today. And for those of y'all who know our story and who've listened about what we do over here at Screen Strong, educating parents about video game addiction and smartphone and social media addiction and all that, most of y'all know or probably have heard about our story with my oldest son. His name is Adam, our oldest. And this is why we started Screen Strong. Of course, I had no idea I was ever going to do this. I am a nurse. I have, my background is in labor and delivery. My background is not in gaming addiction. So when our first son became super addicted to his video game, I had no idea what was going on. We have four children. It was so hard for me to understand what was happening to him and today we are going to be speaking with Dr. Kim Lee, who is an expert in addiction as far as video games and screen addictions for kids. But we struggled with this so much. I was so lost. I was so lonely. And there's a lot of you listening today that have that same feeling. You have this this kid that you thought you knew, you know, and you've lost him to this world of video games. And it is the most frustrating thing for families because they go through a lot of conflict, just like we did. We experienced a lot of conflict in our home. It was so frustrating. It was mostly because we didn't know what we were doing. We did not understand the impact of Adam's game on his brain. I had no idea what was happening. So I needed education. You need education. Our kids need education. And so today we have a video game doctor on with us. This is just what I needed. Um, welcome, Dr. Kim Lee. Thank you so much, Melanie. Thanks for having me on. I just want to acknowledge and, and thank you and your tribe for just being available. It's an amazing movement that you're creating, and I, I hope it, it reaches Australia and that people get on board. Um, the second acknowledgement is that I'd like to acknowledge the, the land of which I am gathered on today, um, the land of the Ghana people here in Adelaide, um, and pay respects to their, their elders, past, present, and emerging. And then lastly, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the internet, and that is the big tech corporations who created the internet and the video games and the social media that goes with, with it. Because I think fundamentally we need to acknowledge that, you know, the so-called digital natives or the children that um, were born with the internet don't own the internet. They, they, they don't know more than um, their parents and uh, the digital, what is it, the digital uh, immigrants, is it? Are we yes. immigrants? I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I've been around for a while, but um, I think fundamentally we just need to acknowledge that the internet is one giant theme park. It's like you know, Disneyland on steroids and we're all just tourists in that virtual world. So I just want to make that acknowledgement first. Yes. Thank you so, so much. I, I am just so thrilled that you're here because back in the day when I was dealing with this back in 2010 with my oldest, he dropped out of um, college, you know, because of his gaming addiction. And we were just stunned. The very thought that there would be someone who calls yourself a video game doctor or the very idea that there is such a thing, I would have gone anywhere to hear you. I, I would have done anything because as parents, we get so desperate when we're losing our kids and there's so much we don't understand. And I'm just so thrilled that you are here. Your, your education and your input on this issue is going to change lives today, right here in this next hour. So many lives are going to change. So Let's get started. I'm so excited to have you. First of all, tell us about your background and how did you become a video game doctor? It probably starts from when I first started playing video games as a young child, um, playing the Atari and having great memories of those games, uh, which are very different to the games of today. So today, I would not say that the games of today are kids' games. They're highly polished uh, they're created to be addictive and to extract as much time and money as possible. So that's the first 
statement I want to make there. And I guess for me, I, I, I first started really understanding, hey, hang on a sec, these video games are different when I was in medical school. So I had a best friend. We were studying for our exams and we had actually planned this overseas trip, our first big you know, trip as young adult men. And uh, he was spending his exam study time playing an NBA game on the PlayStation. Mm-hmm. I remember this conversation as clear as day. I said to him, look, I don't want to be overseas with you and us receive our uh, exam results and for you to have to go back to our hometown to reset exams. And I said to him, I'm concerned about the amount of time we're spending playing this game and not studying. And sure enough, we were overseas and he had to buy a plane ticket home and a textbook that he read on the plane and studied for the exams to reset them to pass for the next year. Fast forward to 2008, I'm a junior doctor and I'm working on a voluntary inpatient unit for mental health patients. And I meet a a young woman who's admitted for anorexia nervosa. So she's not eating enough. She's severely underweight. And she was addicted to the game World of Warcraft at the time. And, you know, it was a very famous uh, game, still is, uh, for addiction. And, you know, to me, it really puzzled me at that time because I'd never really known uh, women to play video games much at, around that time. It wasn't very popular. But the thing that really fascinated me was I found out that she was starving her virtual self, her avatar, not giving it health potions or health points. It mimicked her real life uh, mental illness. So she was starving her physical self as well as her virtual self. And that was enough inspiration for me to go, I need to become a psychiatrist. I need to whatever video game doctor in the future or invent that term and um, find out more about this. And I, I followed it up ever since because I, I learned in medical school, the first lesson I, I learned was what you know about medicine today will be different in 10 years time. And to the date, 10 years later, 2018, World Health Organization made it a fully fledged diagnosis. And so, you know, here I am today. Wow. You know, World of Warcraft was what my son played. Oh, wow. I had no idea. Wow. Yeah, that's what he played. So when you said that, I have this chill that goes up my oh, spine. Yeah. That was the game that, that got him. He did have his avatar in there. And I totally understand what, what you're saying about becoming so immersed that you become your character. That's exactly, I think, just what you you just said. You know, they, they're living in the virtual world. They're trading the real world for the virtual world. You can't live in two places, right? You can't, yeah. you can't do both. Yeah. And World of Warcraft is like a drug. When I picked him up from college on that first um, year, when I picked him up and he looked terrible, he couldn't get out of bed. He had not eaten for a week. He, he admittedly, well, he had not gone out of his room and had quit going to classes. And I thought he was on drugs I was mortified. I I was just so upset. I was, you know, and I kept asking him if he was on drugs and he said, no, it's World of Warcraft. It did something to me. Those were his words. So I love what what you just said that they're not kid games. That's really powerful. So then what happened after that? Well, uh, I studied for many more years doing psychiatry and I actually... Uh, I lost contact with that particular uh, patient because I was rotating through. But in 2015, I was uh, pretty much towards the advanced training as a psychiatrist, and I I managed to get some funding from the Australian government and go to a video gaming addiction clinic in Singapore. So they were way ahead of their time providing a service uh, for teenagers for addiction and, of course, if you know anything about Singapore, to get drugs and alcohol there as a minor is very difficult. So they were all addicted to video games. As a gamer myself, going to Singapore as a doctor, training to become a psychiatrist was really important for me because at that time, I was still not completely convinced that you could become addicted to a video game. And it, and it took me to go overseas to see patients face-to-face for myself 
and to realize how much they were suffering and uh, how uh, much help they needed, it made me realize, hey, this is going to be a problem and this is going to be a problem in Australia. And, um, you know, that's what inspired me to deliver a TED Talk, my first ever public speaking experience in front of 600 people. But, you know, I was on a mission. I had to just spread this idea, this message. And around that time, people were like, hmm, yeah, I'm not really on board with you right now. Um, <laughs> I can see how uh, fascinating the internet and video games are, but, yeah, Minecraft is harmless. And then, you know, fast forward to today, people are like, Kim, you were right the whole time. We underestimated this technology and we don't know what to do. Please help us. So we're going to put that TED Talk link in our description here on the podcast. If you're listening and you want to hear that TED Talk, it's really, really good. And I am so tracking with you right now because in 2010 mm. was when all this, you know, my son graduated from high school, he went to college and that's, I was, I was right there with you, right? In spirit somewhere, because I was trying to tell people there's something wrong with these games and, and nobody believed me. It was crazy. And you couldn't even say the word video game addiction. Like that was like a bad word. Like you couldn't even say that. And I was starting to do workshops. We had a workshop at our school. The very first thing that we did, I thought I was just going to have about 10 moms show up to talk about what's happening in their home. And we had over a hundred people come. Wow. So that really was why we started Screen Strong and started educating. But you were at the same time, literally the same years here, you were doing your TED Talk you were trying to get the word out. So that's just fascinating that you've come so far. And that. so I, what I want to know is tell us about that uh, addiction clinic in Singapore. Like what, just been just a minute, what did it, what was it like? Like, what did it look like? What were they doing? Yeah. I mean, that we, we published a commentary on the profile of the teenagers presenting there. And the interesting thing is that, you know, they were playing games like League of Legends and, and whatnot. But the interesting thing is, is that they were averaging 45 hours per week. And 45 hours per week is like a full-time job, right? They were gaming daily. To me, back then, gaming daily was not a thing. Nowadays, it's like commonplace. If you look at the DSM-5 criteria, you know, you're looking at um, you know, cutting down or when was the last time you didn't game. I could ask that question in the past. Kids would say to me, yeah, I went to school camp. I, I really struggled. Uh, but nowadays it's like, I've never, I can't remember the last time I haven't played and I don't need to go to school camp right now because it's not compulsory. One of the stories that I talk about in my TED talk is in Singapore, a, a, a boy asked me for a six certificate to get out of school camp. And I was really puzzled by this. And I asked him why don't you want to go to school camping? He said, uh, camping's dirty. It's, you know, uncomfortable. There's, you know, bugs lying around and stuff. And I, uh, and I asked him, what's your favorite video game? And he said, like many kids at the time, Minecraft. And I said to him, well, isn't camping like real life Minecraft? And he thought, to him, he goes, hmm, yeah, you're probably right. And you could see the penny drop in his mind that he hadn't considered that. And I said to him, I'm not writing you a six certificate. you you got to go and uh, experience that for yourself. So it really is about this immersion, I think. Mm. And even, even in him, even you talking to that young boy and he's trying to figure out, wait a minute. Yeah, you're right. Real life is here, you know, camp, you know, Minecraft is here. Explain how games are so immersive and then let's talk about what that state is like but first of all can you explain how the designers do it the designers think about every single possibility every single detail to make sure that you don't take your eyes off the screen to make sure you're not bored with it any kind of element that is frustrating or is annoying they'll fix it so they're very good at adjusting the game and adjusting to whatever context it is. And so the spell of digital immersion is your belief that you are actually in a physical other place. Uh, you believe that um, you're no longer in the real world, but you're in another place that has meaning and has other real people that you're playing with. Anything that disrupts that 
is quite frustrating. So you want to minimize any of those cues to leave. And, um, you know, the most popular game right now, arguably, is Fortnite. It's very good at engageability and making sure that everything is usable. Uh, Celia Hoden is a PhD psychologist um, who worked on Fortnite, and she explains in videos exactly how they do that. Um, they make sure that if they design a tool in the, the game, for example, that the people know how to use the tool and that its intended use is used by the, the user and they get that from user feedback and watching people how they play. They make sure that every single aspect is fun and, you know, reacts to you, you know, so every single little thing, you know, whether it's the, the blade of grass and how that interacts with your character, it makes you really believe that you're in another place. I know for a lot of games... And in Fortnite, I think does, uh, it was only a matter of time, right? Before a game is invented that includes all of these immersive, you know, tricks, so to speak. I mean, over time, certain games had certain ones, but the more and more this is studied, all of a sudden we come up with this. Well, it's not all of a sudden, but, you know, we get better and better at designing games. They, they hire the best, the best of the best, and they pump money into it. Most of these companies spend more money just on their marketing alone than you would for a COVID vaccine. Of course, there's reasons for that. They're making so much money. It's such a huge, a huge business. But with the business model, you don't have a business model if your customer is is not using your product. And so, of course, they're going to spend tons of money trying to figure out how to get them to use the product. And, And it's not that hard to figure out and they use, you know, all of the technology that's used in gambling casinos, right? It's um, all the intermittent rewards. Uh, You know, they know exactly how long the human brain can go without a reward, right? And Mm -hmm. then every gamer has a different kind of personality. So I think there's all this data being passed back and forth and they know that, you know, if you're a new gamer, you're going to need more rewards quicker, you know, than if, if you, you're getting better, you're going up that leader ladder, you are able to, you know, they're able to stretch those out a little bit more. It's all very scientific. And that's what most parents don't understand. I certainly didn't understand it. And I was living with a gamer for four or five years, just scratching my head. Why is he doing this? It's so dumb, you know? So dumb. But then the more I study and even just here today, you talking about it, it's very clear why they're doing it. It's not hard to figure out at all. They will downplay how much they put into it. Right. They'll change their language. You know, they they don't use the word addiction in those companies. They use the word engageability. You know, they don't use reward. They use fun. You know, it's it's a whole new language. And most parents don't understand that they have play labs, test labs, you know, set up where kids come and they test new games. And the minute the, the kid looks away from the screen, they mark that area of the game and think, oh, no, what do we do? We got to get him back. You know, so it's all very controlled. And it's not just like they're out having fun on something. So explain what that spell is like. In our house, I always called it the gaming coma. And I I was the game cop mom in my house. And I hated that job. And I was constantly setting the kitchen timer. I was constantly organizing Mm. things, you know, um, his time because he couldn't manage his time. So when Adam would get into his coma, we didn't know it was an immersive state. I just thought it it was, I joked about it. You know, I'm like, you're in a coma. You can't hear me. I'm calling you for yeah. dinner. What's happening? Yeah. What is going on in a kid's brain when they're in that state, where they're in that flow? They are literally in another world. Explain that. Yeah, I guess it depends on what perspective you're sitting at. And I guess with the parents that I'm seeing, it's almost as if their child is being taken hostage. They're powerless and they're helpless. And that gets passed on to me because, you know, I'm, I'm seeing families remotely by telehealth and trying to use the technology for good, but there's only so much I can do and advice and recommendations I can make. I mean, I can maybe suggest some treatments and uh, some supports and approach, but when it comes down to really severe cases, they've lost their child. There's a lot of uh, grief and loss with that and the dreams that go along with that. 
another way of looking about it is I'm hearing more and more kids just all they care about is having fun and they can't tolerate any kind of responsibility or boredom or anything else other than having fun and being online, being with their friends. And that really baffles me. And all I can really put it down to is lots of things. But one thing I've been thinking about lately is this idea of a hero's journey, right? So the hero's journey is a an archetype, a template for all the most popular mythologies, movies, and stories out there. And uh, video games just have that down to a T. They convince you that you are about to go on an epic journey, an adventure uh, with your friends, and you can overcome these obstacles. And when you defeat them or overcome it, you can become a great person with special powers and abilities. And uh, when you've completed all that, they'll release something brand new, something new and shiny. And you'll do it again. (laughs) And you're on it again. And really the only thing that sort of kept me alive and uh, focused and on track is that, you know, I've experienced my own hero's journey in real life, a young age and a sense of responsibility. And I, I know that I have potential and capability to contribute to society and and you know my hero's journey is about helping people and that keeps me on track but for a lot of kids they don't either experience this or they they miss out for some reason or they just don't believe in their potential and and the stats are showing with I I quote this a lot um, there was a a report written by Princeton University and it was an economics department that looked at uh, stats on young men in their early 20s and they found out within a decade using something called a, um, a United States um, time use survey they found that young men in their early 20s are spending 40% less time in the workforce in study in training and have increased their leisure time on video games by 60% so it's a straight swap and then some and they put it down to video games and how good video games are and how video games meet those psychological needs. It meets them so well because it's so realistic. It, it, the game itself, it's not Pong anymore. It's not Pac-Man anymore. You really are immersed. And that is the the key, just what you talked about a minute ago, that immersion is what's looping them in to this hero's journey. I love the way you describe that. And because we get mad at our kids, but really, or at least I did, I did. I, I freely admit that I was really frustrated because I didn't understand the hero's journey and especially boys. I mean, girls are drawn a little bit to it, you know, and more and more as the games get more immersive, they are, but boys really are on a quest for this hero's journey in their life. And when you trade you know, make the trade for the video game versus the real life, you know, they should be having these hero journeys in real life and not in their game because it's so impossible to get off. It's, and and I want to talk about that here in a minute. I want to talk about this moderation thing for parents Mm. who think, you know, well, you know, it's okay for them to play an hour a day or it's okay for them to play, you know, a couple hours on the weekend, every weekend. I want to, I want you to talk about that and what that does and how that sets sets their brain up differently. But before I do that, at Screen Strong, we talk a lot about the healthy use of screens versus the toxic use of screens. So it's just like food. You can have healthy food and you can have food that's really not that great for you. And we really believe that kids should just have healthy food, right? And they should have healthy screens. And healthy screen use is the type of screen use like for school and, you know, Excel and Word and all those things that they learn to do, even emailing that are not going to be immersive. So I think that's, that's a really good way to explain the difference to parents, but what makes the video game experience so toxic? Because some video games can maybe not be as toxic, right? What puts it over the edge? Oh, there's so many things I could talk about this, but I guess it's kind of like a slow torture. Like you don't really notice the pain. The eyeballs, the brain, the the hand-eye coordination movements, it can tolerate this grind for a long, long time. And it tolerates that because I guess 
the video games have a numbing effect on pain and, and that's why we use VR headsets, right, for people experiencing burns or injections and uh, even I think you can get a deliver a baby in the United States with a VR headset and not experience much pain. Yeah, well, our dentist uses it too on the kids um, oh, when, wow. they're, when they're drilling for cavities. They put yeah. the VR thing on these kids. They're like, Melanie, it's yeah. unbelievable. You know, we can do so much more work. It's so, so powerful. And I guess the the expenses of it aren't really felt until down the track. So what I am seeing now is really quite concerning. So I actually treat quite a few people who play professionally. Um, they're getting burnt out. They're getting um, neck pain, headaches. Um, a young person that I saw was getting so much pain every half hour, he had to lie down on his back flat um, because of his posture and the amount of pressure. I mean, it's giving me shoulder pain right now just thinking about it. He unfortunately uh, went to hospital because the headaches were just so severe. He didn't know what to do. He was banging his head against the wall and he didn't want to live anymore. That's how sad it got. Um, another young person stood up and collapsed because they weren't eating enough. They were underweight. People are ignoring their bladders and their bowels. They're soiling themselves and um, urinating uh, whilst playing. So the, the toxic effects aren't really felt immediately i mean when you i guess when you smoke marijuana or take a drug or something you can kind of feel that effect but i guess with video games it's like you get that thrill and you're just on that roller coaster thrill ride and you're just holding on for dear life and paying so much attention to it you don't really pay attention to your physical body and the physical effects are getting more and more real like the frog boiling in the water, you know, it doesn't yep. know at first when it's the warm water and then all of a sudden it's boiling, you don't know it, but you've got two things going on. You've got the physical effects of everything that you you said, I so relate to. I, I, I know so many people that struggle. I mean, we have 10 year old kids that are wetting the sofa, you know, playing Fortnite mm. and whatnot. I know exactly. But what's happening is the displacement, right? So at yep. the same time, when they're immersed in all this, it's a lot about what they're not doing and, and the time that has been displaced doing, you know, uh, they should be doing other things like running around outside, playing sports, yeah. learning different hobbies, learning interests, being around people, getting that eye to eye contact going and learning their communication skills. So it's not all that it, it's just it is bad. I mean, when they're playing these immersive games, it's really bad. It's, and it is like a drug. It's like everything with, with medicine, right, is about dose, you know, how long you take the drug. So yeah. how how potent the dose is of the drug. I mean, like Motrin, if you take a Motrin, you take one Motrin every few days for pain. Or if you're taking 10 every hour, obviously that's going to have a different effect. And that's the effect of these current games that are so fine-tuned to get our kids immersed and to keep them hooked. There's no stopping point. Most games have no stopping point. So there's there's no natural stopping point where they're done with a game. And that's what I noticed when my son played so much. This struggle with this toxicity is what our culture is having a really hard time understanding. But, you know, Kim, I think that just in a few short years, we're going to look back and we're going to just shake our head and say, what were we thinking letting these kids play this stuff? It was so toxic. I hope so. I hope we reach that point where we, we wake up. Yeah. I think more and more people are looking at the mess right now in their home. And they're getting in our Facebook group. They're calling us. They're getting on board with this movement to right. slow this down. Of course, the awareness isn't where it needs to be, but it's much yep. better than it was 10 years ago. Yep. Tell us what your typical day is with a gaming addict patient. You get a phone call, you get an email, somebody needs to see you. What what is what do they present with? Well, they get a referral from their family doctor to see me and we'll talk via telehealth. So I provide a service to the whole country. I generally begin by talking with the parent first because I find that if we get the parent side of the story with the child there, the child will resent them and me and it'll just ruin the engagement. I'll talk to the child separately, try and get some kind of connection with them. 
you know, ask them about their game and what's so fun about the game and really get a good understanding of what's their primary motivation to play. And it could be to get a sense of power over someone else, achievement, connection with other people, or just, you know, exploring the world in a sort of relatively safe environment that's not walking around and seeing real people, you know. And then, um, you know, I really need to try and understand how impaired they are, how disabled they are by their addiction, uh, whether they're not going to school, um, whether they've developed depression, whether their concentration is shot, and then try and tick off the World Health Organization criteria and say yes or no, whether they've got the disorder. So you need to have at least 12 months of a loss of control over your gaming time, and then a priority for gaming over other important activities and then negative consequences because of the gaming. And then once I've established that, then I need to figure out, is this child on board? Are they aware of this problem? If they are aware, then you've got some glimmer of hope. If the parents are, you know, reasonably, you know, available and have capacity to enforce restrictions, then you've got some hope. If the child does not have any insight, they have no awareness, they believe that what they're doing is normal, or they need to gain more, or they need to practice more, or they need to you know, quit school, then it's a real uphill battle. And I have to prepare parents that it's not going to be easy and it's going to be a long road. And I'm seeing more and more parents, they are burnt out. They're not prepared to follow through with recommendations because they simply don't have the energy to. It's mm-hmm. a, like you said, like being a gaming cop. Gaming cop, it's a full-time job. And and I guess, you know, we heard the Chinese government putting in some pretty heavy-handed restrictions. And I, I tell you, the parents that I talked to, they would gladly outsource those decisions to the government and restrict it and say, no, yeah. your friends are not online because I know that there's a restriction between you know, the hours of 8 and 9 p.m., um, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that you have access. So, no, you cannot get a go online. So, you know, people think that that's a massive human rights sort of issue. And, you know, I, I get a lot of, I don't know about you, you probably get a lot of criticism too from people who say, you know, what you're saying is moral panic, moral panic. Mm-hmm. You know, no, if anyone is to blame, it's the gaming publishers, the gaming industry, for ruining the industry because it's going to get to a point where people stop buying these games because they're no longer safe. Mm-hmm. And it's not me and you who are advocating for healthy options. It's the gaming industry themselves. And this whole idea of this moral panic, you know, they're trying to guilt trick parents to say, don't be um, over controlling. Yeah. Like it's so silly because the definition of a moral panic is based on crime waves in the, the, in London many, many hundreds of years ago when um, newspapers were just around. So what happened was a crime would happen, it would get reported in the news, and then people would read it in the news, and then they would start reporting more crimes, and then you know, the police would start, people would panic and people wouldn't leave their homes, right? That's the definition of a moral panic. People change their behaviour because they're worried and fearful of it, right? The moral panic of video gaming is a myth. Because in 2020, the gaming sales in the United States increased by 30% and was something like $3 billion or something. I don't know, something ridiculous for just one game. That's right. Call of Duty, the number one game, made $3 billion. Every single game made 30% more in 2020. And so people are not leaving these games. People are getting more and more hooked on these games. So the fact that we are doing the work that we do isn't actually causing this you know moral panic that they're trying to sell to us it's it's the opposite you know it's it's going the the wrong way people are not aware of the dangers and the health risks no and there's parents out there like me who are living in their home boots on the ground right and they see what's what's happening to their kids and they don't have the education around it which is why we do this podcast which is why we are are working at Screen Strong. And then you 
are in the weeds as well. You yeah. are in this in front trenches. line <laughs> in the trenches and you're watching it explode right in front of you. And so I, you and I both will never believe there is a moral panic around this or some kind of myth around, oh, gaming, you know, is just fun. It's just games. It's not really addictive. We know it is. And parents that are listening know it is too. Um, the parents that are tuning in listening to this today maybe have a child that they're wondering. And we have the addiction criteria assessment on our website. If you want to go look at that, we have all sorts of blogs. We have a whole section now on video games that you can go look at and determine. But if you and your gut know, you know, there's something up with your your kid with this game, then you're right. You need to follow your your gut on that. And when parents call you, Kim, you know, they, they know they are exhausted. I totally agree with that. So if you're listening today, it's okay. You, you don't, love your kids less, but you're exhausted. And I remember just really not liking my son. And that was very disturbing for me because you have to get very real with your emotions as the parent when you're going through this. This is something that we allowed, we gave him. Most parents are paying for this on their credit card every month and they don't even know because their kid has signed their credit card up for something. We're actually dosing it out to them. It's not their fault it's, it's, I don't want to sit here and blame people, but it really is the parent's responsibility to step back, look at these toxic things that our kids are being exposed to and, and just stop it. We have to stop it. There's nothing else. There's no other addiction really in medicine where the, the goal is to just continue the addiction. You have to stop the access. You have to stop the drug addict from getting his drug. You have to stop the alcoholic from, they can't even have a glass of wine, right? It's just going to trigger all of the addiction pathways and all of the reward pathways again in their brain. So parents need prevention and we need to talk about moderation. Before we end today, I want you to talk about how we can prevent video game addiction in our home. And then I want to talk about moderation because I think those two things kind of go together. So what is your advice to parents? And I assume when you have these clients coming in, these patients coming in rather, that you have a system that you put them in to help detox them, right? Yep. And talk about that for a second and then talk about what you do for prevention. Yeah. So I guess the most common question I get is, you know, what's the right number of hours? What's, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't how many hours that. can my kid play? <laughs> I know I get yeah. that same question. Yeah. yeah. So I, I sort of say I, I don't prescribe uh, the right amount of hours because you need to look at your family values and prioritize those values and go from there. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a cop-out, but I think it's a good guiding uh, principle. In terms of the studies that I quote and talk about, 84-hour abstinence protocols from uh, my hometown, so University of Adelaide and Flinders University. Um, you might have heard of Professor Daniel King. He's He's from my hometown, so you know, world-class research studies coming out from my city. And so what they did was they found volunteers who were uh, addicted to their video games. Um, Those volunteers gave up their passwords on Friday midday, and then they got them back on um, Monday midday. And so just an 84-hour window, and they chose the weekend because they know that that's when you're going to game the most. Mm -hmm. That was enough to give the brain a little bit of a break to realize and get some insight and awareness that some of those negative cognitions or thoughts or belief systems are actually untrue. So you might have a thought, I need to get back online to feel better. I need to go back online to be with my friends. My friends need me. All those kind of thoughts, a little window, like 84 hours is enough to go, hey, hang on a sec. Maybe I don't need to go online. Maybe it's not true. Subsequent um, follow-ups they had reduced their gaming time but of course you know if you have the true addiction where you know you you crave playing you you get those cues uh, which are reminders to go back into the game and relapse then you're looking at the classic um, game quitter 90-day detox kind of setup where you're you've got a goal you're journaling every day, you're getting support from other people online, you know, that's probably more suitable for people of college 
student yeah. age, young adult age. But for parents, yeah, we have to look at the stakeholders in the school system, who's in the family that can support them. And I have to sort of really give you a, a virtual hug when you said that, you know, you didn't like your son because for parents, that's a sign of burnout, right? That's you're, you've kind of gone over and above for your child, you've been over backwards, done whatever you can, and just nothing seems to work. And it's causing it's causing so much conflict. Yeah, and, and you never sort of envisage, envisage that for your relationship with your child. But um, I've, I've come across a very sad uh, situation with a family. One time I was working in the hospital system. Uh, I was working with a family. And, you know, this is a trigger warning for any parents out there, but they were so burnt out that their child had actually presented, they wanted to... I think they were so angry that they wanted to swallow some bleach and not not live anymore. And that was directly due to conflict with their parents, right? The only time I've ever heard of this before, but the mother said, I think if my child ended up dying, that would actually be a solution. And and she said it with it, you know, just she had no emotion. And I knew at that time that was a, a parental emergency. I had to give so much empathy for this mother and be there for the mother because if she was not available, then there's no hope for this child. Wow. And and so, you know, I had to sort of rethink about my approach because this this parent was just burnt out and um, you know, it's like the the, the age old saying, you know, you gotta put your oxygen mask on yourself first before you put it on your child, right? Yes. Um, you know, when, when you mentioned that, it just really resonated with me. There's a lot of guilt and pain and suffering that goes on with this addiction. And yet in our culture, it is something that we think that we're supposed to live with. And why is our son struggling so much? And why is it that your child can play and he seems fine, but mine doesn't seem fine? And I want to say to parents out there that those other kids aren't fine and those other families aren't fine. It is virtually impossible to be fine when there's a gaming overuse problem in your home, whether it's your your husband playing at night, that's a whole nother podcast that we have to do another time, or you're watching your 10-year-old just get immersed in this world and you lose them. There's so many kids that are struggling with this. And in our situation, I was, I really am publicly saying I didn't like my son. And I know that he knows that. And we've talked about that and we've made our peace over that. And he's on the other side Mm. now. And so he says, mom, there's, please, there's no story that you can share. that will ever hurt my feelings. So I feel very honored to be able to share that. But I remember when we took him to college, his freshman year, I was so excited because we were going to get a break finally Mm. in our home, in our our marriage and all of the rest of our children that were suffering with this thing that we couldn't control in our house. And, and our situation wasn't as bad as many that I, that I hear about in some of the horror stories, you know, Adam was pretty compliant with other things. He would help with chores and he would do, he had straight A's in school. And so we had a lot to be thankful for, but we lost him. We lost him. And so when he went to college, it, it really did give us a break the whole family dynamic around it, I'm sure you have to deal with that every day because you're dealing with these families every day. Yeah. I don't I don't think about that as much until you bring this up. I'm like, yeah, you've got to make sure that the protective factors are in place with the attachments. I don't know what you think about this. Over the years of living with a gaming addict and now being on the other side, I feel like our whole world is suffering from a, an attachment disorder. I think kids have detached so early from their families. They've gone into these virtual worlds that have filled the void for them and replaced their families and replaced their parents. I think that's the root of the problem. They're belonging somewhere else. That's where the angst comes in with a family unit is this attachment goes away. And you know how important attachments are for human beings. We have to be attached somewhere. So how do you prevent your kid from being attached to their video game? A million dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> well, we, we can't really consider them as video games anymore. So that's that's the first thing. So not buying the latest console. If the games don't exist, then there's no gaming disorder, right? That's right. 
But the problem is, is even if you buy the console, it's linked up to the internet so the kids can actually download it without your permission, without your knowledge. You know, my, my nephew, he, he asks me, you know, can you buy me a so-and-so for Christmas? And I'm like, nope, this is something that your parents don't want you to get and I'm not going to get it for you for these reasons. And, and, and they just have to accept it for what it is. And holding back probably guilt trips a lot of parents because it feels like your child is missing out. Mm-hmm. But you have to think about what your child can gain from that as well. You know, you have to coordinate somewhat with the other parents too, I think, you know. Yes. There's some parents who are on board as well. I mean, I'm getting a lot of fathers come up to me and saying, look, we've noticed this. we got to do something about it. They're like problem solvers. And I'm like, welcome to the tribe, my friends. Um, You know, just, <laughs> you know, it's a cultural shift, right? And so parents, they have to work together on a team as though they were in a video game, so to speak. Well, we call them coaches. They need to be a coach. They've got their team is failing. They got to get back in the dugout and have a talk and say, okay, we're going back to the basics. And this is what we're doing. Yeah. It's very much a coach's mentality. I tell parents all the time to take your parenting hat off and put your coach's hat on, go get some assistant coaches. You're right. You've, you can't do this by yourself, right? You, you have to be in a community. And that's what I think is so great about Screen Strong is that I'm, I'm amazed, you know, how many people on your podcast and how amazing their stories are. That's so inspirational. And I, I, I really want that for Australia. And I'm glad that you've got some Screen uh, Strong uh, ambassadors um, here in Australia. You know, Jen Hoey, she is doing some great work as well. And she referred myself to you. So without that tribe, I wouldn't be speaking with you today. That's right. And it is a universal problem. It looks the same everywhere you go, whether you're in Australia or in the United States, it's it's the same presentation. It looks just the same. And so we find the solutions are very simple, delay, postpone, you know, not buying all the latest stuff. And and it is a culture shift. I think the, the biggest thing for prevention is education, of course, which is what you are so good at doing. And, and not only just education, but you have to change your lifestyle. It's a life shift in the way you're going to raise your kids. It starts early. So what I have learned, and I want you to speak to this in, as we wrap up, I think the first five years of my work with GreenStrong was trying to help parents set limits and manage and figure out the perfect amount of time. And over that five-year period of working just face-to-face with family after family after family, I started realizing this doesn't work. And so there's this myth that says that we can just do this a little bit a day, or we can just do this a little bit and our kids are going to be okay. I am on the other side, like the whole other side. I don't agree that you can moderate a toxic activity. I wouldn't want to moderate pornography in my house either and say, oh, just a little bit of porn every day is okay as long as we're not spending, you know, over 30 minutes on it. That doesn't make any sense. And games are so powerful that I don't believe that moderation is a good way to go even, even just trying to balance it. I think we balance screens, but we don't balance toxic screens. So can you give your real life opinion professionally on that topic of moderation yeah well the the key is in my 10 years or so in this space is the rapid evolution and the change of pace of these games it's very hard to keep up with so any kind of benchmark that you say today is going to be different tomorrow so if you say um, moderation you know one hour today that one hour on the game of today is not going to be the same as the hour of the games of tomorrow because the games of tomorrow are going to be that much more better, yeah. that much more exciting, that much more addictive. It just It's like they've manufactured a more pure form of cocaine. Like how do you make cocaine more cocaine? Like it's, you know, once you reach 100% addictiveness, it's like mm-hmm. they just create some other molecule that is cocaine too, you know, like... So, <laughs> upgrade (laughs) yeah it's yeah that that toxic um analogy that you talk about yeah it's if we're talking about the actual 
addiction. You've got the compulsion you can't control. You, your brain is actually uh, lighting up when you see something associated with it and when you've had time away from it and you take a little taste or you know you see someone else do it, you're going to get back right onto it as if you've never left it. And that's the scary thing. That's why moderation doesn't work. You're playing with fire. Your your child doesn't start fresh every day. Their brain is gotten this effect cumulatively over time. And so you can say, well, it's a new day and they can just play another 30 minutes. It's It adds to it. It doesn't, they're not starting with a fresh slate, so to speak. And that's why the moderation, you know, if you do anything for 20 minutes a day, Kim, if you or I, you know, did push-ups for 20 minutes a day, we'd be pretty strong. <laughs> by, maybe you do. I don't. I wish I did. If you do anything for 20 minutes a day or an hour a day, you're going to develop a habit. You're going to develop those brain pathways in that area of your brain. They're going to become very paved and our kids are... Uh, adults, uh, humans are craving low effort, high reward activities. So the more that that gets paved, the more we're going to crave those low effort, high reward type things. That's why moderation is so dangerous with gaming. And I, and I know that, that some parents argue, well, that's where my kids have friends and that's their only social outlet. What do you oh. tell your patients? I'm sure your patients come in saying that. Every patient probably says that. That's where their relationships are. How do you answer that? Uh, it's it's different case by case. You know, I, I sort of try and relate it back to, you know, that hero's journey thing again and, and what they really want in life and what goals they're looking forward to. And every single real-life goal, whether it's getting a job or getting to university, it's all linked to those social skills. I'll leave you with this one. So I, I got asked to do a workshop with some Year 10 students, so they're about 15, 16 years old. And they all wanted me to tell them how to use it healthily. And to me, it's like explaining how to choose the healthy options on a McDonald's menu. It's, it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a loaded question. So I, I told them, you know, you have to think of these three things when you're looking at technology. The first thing is you have to realize that it's a tool that's outsourcing a part of your brain. Like it's going to make your brain not think about it and it's going to make it easier on your brain. That's the first thing. It's a tool. The second thing is for any benefit to get out of that tool, one foot has to be firmly planted in the real world for you to get any real benefit from that. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, if it's all online, then it's then you're just escaping reality. Um, it's a fantasy. And then, and then lastly, if it is a tool that you need to use, can you use this tool when you most need it? Is it going to save you um, in those end of year exams or in an interview? If you can't access it in that moment, then you shouldn't be training or practicing on that technology. You should be practicing face-to-face, -face, these social push-ups, so to speak. And I, I, I explained to them um, my story as a, as a teenager wanting to get into medicine. My medical school had an interview process as well as the academic part. Um, I, I knew that I would never pass the interview. So what I did was, as a 16-year-old, at the bus stop, I forced myself to say hello to the person sitting at the bus stop waiting for the bus. And by the end of the year, I was able to explain to them who I was, what I wanted to do, and why I wanted to get into university. And so that was enough to prepare me for this scary interview with two strange adults who were very powerful people. And, you know, we, we don't really get those experiences if you're on a video game and hanging out with your mates, having fun and being silly. You know, it's not preparing you for anything. That's really good. That's a really good way to look at it. And it's because it's during the stage of development in these adolescent years where all that is so critical to develop. Those three things are really good. Thank you so much for sharing that. A couple more questions here. We're going to wrap up. Why do you think parents struggle so much? Shouldn't you just be able to pull the plug and say, enough is enough, we're done. Why, why is it such a struggle for parents to say that to their kids? Great question. I guess this is something that as a society, we've never really seen this before. Yeah. Maybe the closest thing is, is smoking around our kids. We don't really notice that it was a bad thing until kids started dying, right? 
or developing lung problems. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that there's enough evidence now and it's clear as day to parents that this is no longer a video game. This is no longer a child's game. This is not the games that you grew up with. This is something else. This is something so powerful and something that we need to be concerned about and be vigilant about. Yeah, I think it's education. I think as I sit here and think about that question too, it's education and community. If they have a community that's supporting them, it's so much easier. And we've got to start creating these screen strong communities all over the world because kids have to find a place to be okay. You know, it's really hard to be different. We just have to teach our kids how to be different and how to go against the the crowd on, on some of this. And, you know, my son, one of my boys, I tell Adam, the oldest, I tell him all the time, you know, honey, you saved your brothers <laughs> because we have two more boys coming up that could have done the same thing. And we laugh right. about that. One of them just recently put note out that he was starting a chess club at school mm. just this week. He had 52 teenagers sign up. And at wow. first I didn't believe him when he told me, I said, what? You're teasing. And he said, no, here. And he sh- and, and I looked and the list has 52 kids on it. Amazing. It's not that hard to step out and be different and to be in the real world and say, hey, let's do this real world chess thing you know, during school, they have a time where they let them do that. I was very encouraged by that. Just the fact that now for at least 30 minutes, once a week, these kids are not going to be on their phones and they're going to be face to face, eyeball to eyeball, you know, playing chess with other kids. These little things don't take much. It doesn't take much. I think parents need to be encouraged by the things they can do. So what can parents do? Let's wrap with that. We've got parents that are listening today. They have kids that are really struggling. They're probably on the spectrum of realizing this to where then maybe, you know, some of them are like me, (laughs) where they got, they're just to the point where they just want to kick their kids out of the house. Like they're done with it. In fact, you know, when my son, when Adam was a junior that summer between his junior and senior year, my husband and I thought we had the solution and we said, Adam, we're going to have, we need you to meet us for coffee and ice cream, whatever it was. And we went and sat and talked to him. And we told him that he either had to get a job and get rid of his video games or move out of the house. Mm. And, you know, he was 17. Like it's not cute anymore to be sitting around and on game all day. And he just looked at us very calmly and he said, okay, I'll move in with my friend. We were just stunned. And so that summer he did, he moved out and he moved in with a friend and they, and they gamed also. And I just couldn't even believe it backfired on us. <laughs> it didn't do what I thought it was going to do. I thought he was going to say, Oh guys, I don't want to leave. But he was like, Oh, no problem. I'll just move out. So yeah. that didn't really work well for us, but what, what can parents do? What can they do today? Um, you know, we have our green strong challenge. We can talk about that a second, but what yeah. do you think, what can you recommend for parents? Yeah, I mean, yeah, continue having this conversation. Ask the people around you what their opinions are, what their experiences are, um, what have they trialed and errored uh, and failed and what's worked for them. And if they're experiencing those symptoms that you had, you know, like not liking their child or um, resenting their child, you know, go and seek professional help. Like there are people like yourself, there are people out in the community who are providing support, providing clinical, uh, professional help, um, they, they do exist. The resources are there. It takes, you know, a little bit of motivation and effort, but it's going to pay dividends. I think it's hard to find those people. I know that a lot of counselors here and psychiatrists, you know, they recommend all this moderation and that's what trips up. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what trips up parents a lot. Um, And it's all a compromise. Everything is negotiation. And I'm, I think that puts you further under. Yeah. I mean, it comes back to that whole um, digital natives and digital uh, immigrants sort of situation, isn't it? It's it's like you're putting yourselves or them above you or on the same level as you to negotiate when in fact, you know, best and you know, the evidence is there and you have to follow through. You just have to put your foot down. It's, it's again, it's just like a coach on a football team. He can't let his team run over him. And when he sees a problem, he has to identify the problem, start a new game plan, go back to the basics. And that, that's what we're really striving for at Screen Strong is to help parents do that, to just get their, 
their facts straight, get their education, join with, you know, the community of other people that are doing the same thing on the same journey. Just be firm. I think it really requires parents to be firm. Yeah. And and you also have to sort of be aware of what is the technology outsourcing for you? Is it outsourcing your parenting? Is it giving you that break that you need from your child? Is it babysitting your child? And and if 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 you have to dig deep and admit that, then then that's also another really critical step. For some people they might not be prepared for that. And you have to reevaluate and scaffold, I guess, um, sure. before you make any of those big decisions. Yeah, you got to make some life changes. And that's what our challenge is about. And I think you know a little bit about the challenge. It's a week off of toxic screens, you know, video games and, and their smartphones and their social media, because all this is very much the same travels on the same channels with girls with the social media is very similar to the boys and the gaming thing. It's a lot of the same technology, a lot of the same persuasive design elements are in both your phone and your your video games, but the challenge is seven days and it's just enough to give you sort of that glimpse of, Hey, wait a minute. I did, I did this. This wasn't as hard as I thought. So let's keep going. Let's do 30. Let's do 60. It's just sort of the on-ramp. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a classic hero's journey. It's a a challenge and the, 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 the hero's journey story, it's about your ordinary world what you're used to and what you're not used to and there's always a little bit of resistance you know there's always a little bit of reluctance to go out and venture to the unknown world but you do get a mentor someone that helps you through that and that could be screened from families other people to help you through that when you overcome those challenges you you get special ability a reward something you walk away with and when you come back to your ordinary world you know you become that hero and now I myself have given myself these experiments in the past. I've, I've gone down from a, a smartphone to a dumb phone or downgraded from 10 to a 5 or what, whatnot. My local gym, we did a challenge that you guys might like. It's not eating any meal in front of a screen. Right. If you do catch yourself looking at a television or something, you have to donate $5 to a local charity and I tell you what, that first day I, I donated $10 straight up. I, yeah. I was just <laughs> after so breakfast. Used to it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, after breakfast. And what I realized is from that particular experience, initially all my meals became really boring. I was like, what am I going to do? Soon enough, your brain adapts and finds interesting things about the meal that you're eating, whether it's the smell, the texture, the taste. And you start having a different relationship to your food. And I was eating slower, you know, um, I was eating more mindfully. That's another challenge I'm going to give you guys. Yeah, that's a really good idea. And what you just said, how it takes a while, right? It takes a few days, but then other opportunities open up. And that's what happens with the Screen Strong Challenge when parents take video games away, the kids start finding something else to do. And initially it's super hard, but once they get through you know, the first half of the week, then they're forced to start finding other things to do. And they get excited about these other things that, that produce dopamine. Um, maybe not as much as the video games, but it's surprising to families by Wednesday or Thursday when they say, you know what, we're really having fun with our kids again. And they're talking to us and we're cooking together. We went on a walk together, you know, that those are the beneficial things that, Uh, that we just all have to do. And it's hard work and it's hard to say no to your kids, but the parent has to do it. The kid will never be able to get themselves off their game. Let's close. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been so fun. I could talk a whole nother hour with you um, because this is so close to my heart, of course, with our own personal story. But we have a lot of parents that are listening that are really struggling and my heart just really goes out to them because I remember, and I promised myself that I would never forget that pain. It's very painful. Some are just starting to see it. Some are really immersed in the the drama in their home and the conflicts that are happening. And if this person, if these people, these parents were sitting in your office or you're, you're on a conference with them and they're just really distraught and now they have to turn around and go do the hard work. What, what is your encouragement for them? Take it one step at a time, one day at a time. Don't forget to put the oxygen on yourself first and that tribe and community around you. 
because there are other people in the same boat as you in the same situation and this is something that again no matter where you are whether you're in the united states whether you're in australia um, there are parents suffering and grieving and um, struggling so you know other people like yourselves have gotten through it and the community is there to help you you're not alone I love that, that you're not alone. It is the loneliest journey. It is so lonely. It's even more lonely, Kim, than going through the, the drug and the alcohol stuff, because at least that's accepted by our culture. Mm. This is a little different. This is different. It's lonelier because we're not there yet, because our culture hasn't accepted it 100%. But And I love the one day at a time. That is my motto. <laughs> is it? Okay. Right. Yes. One yeah, day at a time. Yeah. And we get so anxious as parents. We, we are so anxious about our kids and what if, and what if, and what if, and in the future and in the future. And, and I'm just like, calm down. Let's just look at today. Let's just get through today. Let's just take this one day. And then we're going to focus on tomorrow, tomorrow. I think we're all guilty of projecting into the future and, borrowing all this stress that might happen in the future. So I think you're, you take it one day at a time. It sounds so simple, but most of the best solutions in life really are very simple. Kim, we're so glad you're here. So glad you joined us today. So glad that you just are in this space doing this hard work on the front line. You are a frontline worker. <laughs> Thank you so, so very much. Thank you. Well, I hope you all enjoyed listening today. Please share this podcast with a friend. If you enjoy this content, consider being a podcast sponsor for us. You can contact us at team at screenstrong.com for more information because we depend on donations. People ask me all the time, well, how do you do this? And that's how we do it through donations. You can go to our, our website, screenstrong.com to donate, and you can learn more about our free version of the Screen Strong Challenge there. We're going to help you kickstart this digital detox with your kids. If you're out there right now needing help, join our Screen Strong Families Facebook group. You will get a lot of support from other parents just like you. And we also have a course coming up. So I'm very excited about this course for parents. It'll be ready hopefully very soon before the end of the year. So you can go on the website and sign up for that to get on the wait list. So remember, we've got your back. You are not alone. We are here to help you with your kids. So until next time, stand up for your kids, stand out from the crowd, and stay strong. Mm -hmm.